0: This episode of Asymmetrical Haircuts is supported by JusticeInfo.net.
1: Asymmetrical Haircuts. Justice Update. With Janet Anderson and
2: Stephanie van den Berg.
1: Hi Janet. Hi Steph. We often get asked how we work as journalists, and I wondered whether you'd like to help pull back the curtain a bit and explain to our listeners how some of the news is made, you specifically being a Reuters correspondent and knowing exactly how it works on the ground. and Specifically, this podcast is about NGOs and their communications with the International Criminal Court. So, Steph, when do you cover press releases from NGOs? Do you cover them? Yes, we do. It's, uh, you know, the NGOs
0: always like to say that so-and-so filed a claim at the International Criminal Court, and we kind of have to weed out what, what they're saying. But sometimes when it's cases that are already ongoing, we pick up those submissions. We know, of course, that this is just a communication, and it doesn't really... You know, you could communicate all kinds of things to the court, but especially when they're like serious groups and serious cases, we do pay attention to it. Uh, recently, we picked up a communication, and I think also a press conference about Shireen Abu Akleh, the Palestinian journalist who was killed in the West Bank. Her employer, the Al Jazeera channel, brought this evidence about the killing to the ICC. Those are all kind of serious parties, and and we know that the office of the prosecutor is looking into Palestine. Uh, and that is just a very interesting case for us. So we do cover that. But, you know, sometimes also we kind of cover it against my will because my regional colleagues get dazzled by the wording of so-and-so file the claim. And have some wording that suggests that this is definitely going to be a case. And then I send strongly worded emails to everybody on the desk that this is not a thing. And I even have a little pat text that I sent that I could send a communication that my cat is committing genocide on the birds in next door's neighbor's garden. And the ICC would have to take it as seriously as any communication. And that seems to kind of uh, quiet them down most of the time.
1: I should also mention why I was thinking about this. I've been doing some work for an organisation called the Turkey Tribunal who wanted to get in touch with journalists. That's why I was doing some work for them. And Just after we put this podcast out, they're going to be asking the ICC to investigate the terrible things that have been happening. This is well before the earthquake, allegations about forced disappearances of a variety of different opposition members and torture that's gone on.
0: But why are they taking it to the ICC? Because Turkey isn't even a member of the International Criminal Court.
1: Yes, exactly. And that's one of the reasons why I think sometimes you and I have some issues with some of these communications that come out. In this case, they're really using the argument that some of the crimes actually start in some ICC member states and then carry on back on the ground in Turkey, a little bit like the arguments that we saw about the, what's happened in Myanmar with the Rohingya population. and Myanmar is not a member, but Bangladesh is and therefore the, those forced disappearances, the forced displacement of people carried on into Bangladesh.
0: Oh, yeah, we see that with some other cases, too, of people trying to find that backdoor again. I think that shows that from a news point of view, we understand why NGOs would use the ICC to publicize their work. Not all do. Some also just send straight communications to the ICC. And then later when we have people on the podcast, they're like, oh, yes, because we sent this and this and this in communication. And then you think, oh, you know, we would have liked to have heard about that. <laughs> we might have written about it. So, so I don't want to tar all NGOs with the same brush. Some kind of play it up for attention and others are working diligently and, and providing real work to the court with that
1: and just to be clear to make sure that everybody including our listeners who maybe aren't quite so au fait with the workings of the Rome Statute that governs how the ICC operates there is a provision in there that says NGOs or anybody basically can send in communications to the court and you know they get received directly By the Office of the Prosecutor. I did a piece of work about this recently and had a look and saw that over the last 20 years, the ICC's received at least 15,000 different communications. And if you pull the figures out, you can see that about 700 were considered, quote, warranting further analysis. So they kind of weeded out from all of those the ones that are completely irrelevant, completely not not under the court's aegis on any level at all but out of those 700 only about 50 actually did go through kind of a proper analysis and then i looked at what the independent expert review which is so often my source for actual figures and insight into what's been going on in the court cuz we don't get a lot out of the court itself and they said that five of these various communications. So from the 15,000 down to five had actually gone on to become official investigations. And there were Venezuela, the Philippines, the Bangladesh, Myanmar situation, Burundi, and when the Office of the Prosecutor reopened the situation concerning the conduct of British forces in Iraq.
0: It's really fascinating that you can pull out those figures. Under Fatou bin Souda, every year we would wait. She would have a kind of report about the preliminary investigations and how many cases she opened and the preliminary investigations, of course, at the ICC is a stage before going into a a full scale investigation. And in that, she would also mention how many communications she got and some of the like more important communication, what she did with them. Now under the new prosecutor, Kareem Khan, We haven't seen that. He's not- Oh,
1: I disagree with you. Um, I'm going to interrupt you on that one because I actually went back to that annual report and there's a tiny little paragraph inside this very long annual report, which is full of all kinds of other things, which still gives some of the figures as well. So he does actually give that small update, but he doesn't present it the, the way that the former prosecutor presented it
0: yeah he doesn't go into what is happening and what stages of preliminary investigations in, but he does give some numbers about the number of communications I think he he received
1: that's right you're you're absolutely right there i mean it's uh, it is very different in terms of the the level of description of the analysis that's going on within the office of the prosecutor. And I think that is what's really frustrating to some of the NGOs. Uh, I look back, there was also a report from FIDH, the human rights organization representing lots of different human rights organizations all over the world based in Paris, and they described it as feeling like a kind of an iron door that trying to get the Office of the prosecutor's attention was really, really hard to to kind of bang on that door and to to get the investigation going. And of course we do understand why.
0: Yeah, from the Office of Prosecution's point of view, you know, they have limited resources, limited people, they have priorities, and their priorities is then, you know, investigating the case at hand and not kind of holding the hand of all these NGOs that want their attention. And I'm sure they are being dragged in all directions all the time because everybody wants their case to go through
1: yeah it's also i think that it's it isn't the most transparent of processes there is a strategy paper you can look back at that and it is being revised and a new one will come out to explain how the process works and it does in very fancy language, explain the different stages that they go through in order to assess exactly whether the material is useful. But honestly, one of the clearest understandings that I got came from an event that was held earlier this year by Doughty Street Chambers, and they partnered with the Grotius Centre. And the Deputy Prosecutor, Mame Manjian Jiang, said that the prosecutor's independence was really at the core of the credibility of the court. So the prosecutor has to be able to be independent and make their own decisions. And he also said that while the court is open to input from people, their priorities have to be state referrals and the UN Security Council referrals and he also said that they really have in terms of their total capacity they could look at about eight situations total and already they were looking at 11 situations so already overstretched so they're just not really got the resources to to deliver more than that
0: now it's absolutely clear that the that the office of the prosecutor is kind of already overstretched and they're doing a lot on the other hand, you know, I do understand the kind of possessiveness of NGOs, that this is their court, finally, there is some court that should look at all this stuff. So everybody wants the court to look at the case that they find the most important. And there is also so many, I mean, there's so much horrible things going on and so many conflicts that don't get a lot of attention and also just... If the ICC would deign to look at your conflict, then that already is a kind of boost in in media attention that you might get, however limited. So I I do totally understand the impulse of the NGOs as well. Plus, I also understand the OTP that they, they can't possibly do anything, but they're the only one in a lot of cases who possibly could do anything. So I understand every NGO taking a shot. Yeah,
1: it's a conundrum. It really is. Well, I thought it might be useful just to take the example of one of the NGOs that we know a little bit in terms of how they operate, and that's the ECCHR. I'm not even sure if I know exactly what the acronym stands for, but they're based in Berlin and they're a group of lawyers who work very hard and quite often send material to, to the ICC.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You've heard them come along in our podcast uh, because over the
1: last 10
0: years, they've submitted a lot of communications to the OTP. We had the Yemen podcast. We are planning a Libya podcast with the uh, people from, from their organization.
1: We did something connected to their work on the UK Iraq situation. We've covered so many different things and they really do work on, really on all the places that we. We like to cover, but I contacted uh, one of their representatives, Andreas Schuler, and I asked him how their relationship with the OTP has changed over the years.
2: Under Fatu Ben Souda, the quality of the meetings improved over the years.
1: So that last prosecutor, Fatu Ben was different from her predecessor, uh, Luis Moreno Campo, and I wondered how it was under the current prosecutor.
2: More recently, we still had the meetings as before with on, on a on a working level, I would say, also under Khan.
1: So that means that they really are more in contact with the teams who are working on the specific situations than really on the kind of the top level people. But what does it mean that they actually do in terms of, you know, what do they provide the office of the prosecutor? And the way that uh, Andreas described it is really trying to enable the prosecution teams to find the evidence themselves.
2: That's always our approach, that we file it not only as NGO, but also as, as lawyers, basically, where we did our own investigations and we know which experts spoke on the situation, where are maybe witnesses and in which conditions are there, as in stable conditions, are they legally represented so that a valid or a good statement can be secured, linkage witnesses. And that's all key, I think, if you seriously want to start building cases as a prosecutor, you need, of course, the evidence. And when we file, we want to at least provide a way and, and show a way how to access and secure evidence directly or maybe through, through others, national units, and so on. And then, hopefully, from our perspective, this investigation goes forward.
0: I think that is that is a really good way to go about it, And I, and I understand why the OTP would do it that way. It makes sense. It also makes sense for me that the OTP will want to kind of educate the NGOs or some NGOs, because it's not clear to all NGOs what exactly the office of the prosecutor would need to carry a case forward. Not only in terms of what kind of evidence, but also the kind of the way you would present it or the kind of people you would want. Now, the OTP recently put out this guideline also for NGOs on how to help them with investigations, which seem to be just locate people who are interesting and don't talk to them, for God's sake, because we want to do everything themselves. But, uh, you know, that also uh, clashes with the NGOs who want sometimes something else as well. They want something to go to the ICC, but they also want to highlight the plight of the people they're representing. So it's it's always a balancing act between what everybody wants and everybody wants different things.
1: I found it quite reassuring kind of talking through with Andreas and I talked to other people around this as well to realize that the NGOs aren't wasting their time. I mean, there might be 15,000 communications and only five in the end go through, but but they do go through. This information doesn't just get into a black box. There really is a process where it's all looked at initially and checked. It's not just kind of thrown away. But the prosecutor, at the end of the day, has to make their own investigation. They're the ones who are going to decide themselves exactly what form that takes the other thing that I found really interesting when I was listening to Nyang talking at that event was that he really objected to the idea of NGOs lobbying. Not not that NGOs would lobby, but that, that, that term lobbying would be used because that's not how the OTP sees its role, not as something to be lobbied. They are there to investigate all sides. They also have to take into account evidence that shows somebody's not guilty as well as guilty. They're meant to give that evidence, also share it with with the defense. So it's more like they just want the stuff just to be given to them and then they make all the decisions themselves rather than getting lobbied to do something.
0: Absolutely. And I think they they got a lot of criticism in the beginning, even before Fatou Bensuda and Luis Moreno Ocampo. They got a lot of flack for just kind of whacking in NGO reports into cases that then later got criticized by the judges for that and not doing their own investigation. So we now really see that the OTP is carefully working, sending their own teams on the ground. They're sharing some information, but not all of it because they really want to build their own case and find their own materials because that makes the case stronger to go
1: to ICC judges. In the meantime, uh, you have to work with your colleagues, Stephanie, and we have to work with journalists around the world and explain to them exactly how this weird court works, or at least our best understanding of how how it works so that they can um, report on it accurately.
0: Yeah, but I do say, I mean, it does make our work also interesting. It does make it, you know, we can say a whole lot of things about what the ICC is not doing and what it is, but it is good to know that it has kind of taken up residence in international consciousness so that there, if there is some horrible crime somewhere, people have the idea that surely the ICC should, you know, should act in this. And this is surely a thing for the ICC when, you know, 20 years ago, that was no, not even a thing. And so while it's, I'm exasperated many times when somebody comes to me or some colleague sends me messages of, oh, XX file the claim at the ICC and now they'll have to make it a case on the other hand you know those people are keeping me in a job for, <laughs> for many many years and it is now you know the, the court is a thing and it's a thing to be reckoned with and it is it is absolutely has its place in the kind of international scheme of accountability so I do think that that is important it's a bit of a Jiminy Cricket situation now
1: Long live the ICC it keeps us in a job Yes <laughs>
0: This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in The Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development, and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com, and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word. If you like our show, please consider supporting us. We'd be happy with any amount you put in the tip jar we have up on our site, or you can join us on Patreon. For as little as a few euros or dollars a month, you will get our exclusive War Criminals Book Club episodes, other goodies, and you'll earn yourself a shout-out on the podcast. Look for the link on our webpage, or go to patreon.com and search for Asymmetrical Haircuts.